Hello, you're welcome to If I Were the Minister for Education from Unshot.net. Interview. When all is not well, with well-being. I have to be honest with you. If I ever go to a conference or I'm at something, I suppose there's no conferences these days with COVID-19, but if I'm at a webinar or a virtual conference, something that really, really triggers me and makes me feel very, very awful is when I see something about well-being. Well-being webinars and well-being, well-being seminars are being offered all over the place to teachers. And to be honest with you, I think they do exactly the opposite of what they're designed to do. And I was very fortunate that I got a chance to speak to Audrey Bryan from the DCU Institute of Education, or as I call it, the artist formerly known as St. Pat's, uh, to talk to me about well-being and what schools and what educators should be looking out for when they hear the word well-being. Because as lovely as well-being sounds, we need to be careful about where it's coming from and what, what, it, what its intentions are. So in this special interview with Audrey, I ask her all about well-being, um, about her work, and by the end, I hope we come to some conclusion about is all well with well-being? Um, I'm delighted uh, to be joined today by Audrey Bryan uh, from the DCU Institute of Education, uh, or as I like to call it, the artist formerly known as St. Pat's. And uh, I'm delighted to have Audrey because we're going to be talking about well-being, which is uh, some of you uh, will refer to as a trigger word um, in, in education. Um, but we're going to talk about that in a little while. But before we, we do, I always like to get to know who uh, I'm speaking to. So Audrey, uh, without sounding like the first question of an interview, can you tell us about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Thanks so much, Simon, for the invitation. Um, yeah, so I am currently based in, as you said, in the DCU Institute of Education. I suppose, like a lot of people, I wear uh, kind of multiple hats or I have kind of several roles or identities within that space. But um, I suppose my primary identity is as a teacher educator. Uh, so I've been uh, based in the DCU Institute of Education, formerly St. Pat's for, uh, I think, 12 years it is now, um, working primarily with uh, B.Ed. students uh, who are training to become primary school teachers, as well as PME students. Um, so I work mainly in the area of um, primary education. And prior to that, I worked in the UCD School of Education, working with PME students who were training to become second, uh, second level teachers. Um, I'm also involved in teaching advanced research methods. So I work with experienced educators and educationalists more broadly who are pursuing doctoral degrees uh, or research uh, masters by research. Um, I suppose I have a particular interest in qualitative research methods, um, observation, ethnographic techniques, in-depth interviews and you know, the, the role that um, qualitative data can play in um, enhancing education and in coming to a deeper understanding of core educational problems and issues. Um, also involved in, we have a, a BA programme in humanities and one of the subjects on that is uh, human development. So 
um, I teach sociology of childhood on that program. Um, so my, my key kind of interests, I suppose, are in the, the fields or the subfields of sociology known as the sociology of education and the sociology of childhood. But I kind of came to education as a field of study almost by accident. So I would have started out uh, with great intentions to become a counselling so when I was 18 or 19, that was kind of my, my goal. And I studied psychology as an undergraduate student. Um, but I very quickly became quite disillusioned with mainstream psychology um, because I just didn't feel it had great explanatory power when it came to really understanding the nature of psychological distress. And I was very taken with courses that really looked at the broader social context. Um, and that's how I kind of gravitated towards sociology as, as a discipline or as a field. Um, and it was when I moved to the States to pursue further study that I kind of became interested in education as a field of study. I ended up working in higher education in a research capacity. I was working at Teachers College, Columbia University, and that was, you know, a really kind of exciting space in terms of education. Um, mm. And that's how I fell into education as a field of study. And that's how I ended up becoming an educational researcher and an academic. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good. So I suppose before we get into this, because we're going to be talking about well-being in a little while, what, what, what kind of going on at the moment in, in education um, policy kind of in, in Ireland and maybe globally? What's, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking in the middle of uh, the glo- uh, COVID-19 pandemic, so I presume uh, a lot of that's coloured by that. Yeah, there's actually a lot of really interesting stuff going on. Um, I mean, just there's a a, a hot off the presses report that's just been produced by UNESCO. Um, It's which is the outcome of this like two year global consultation on the futures of education. Um, And it's a really interesting process, I think, that was used. Something like a million people were consulted on this uh, process in, you know, encompassing 75 programs they conducted focus groups interviews all the usual kind of stuff but also um, it's it's also informed by artistic visions of you know potential futures of education and to me it's a really interesting report in the sense that it's very much grounded in principles of humanitarianism it really places things like human rights human dignity uh, to the forefront. So that the notion of collective responsibility and this idea of, you know, really working towards a shared vision of education as a public good and the role of education, the sort of transformative potential of education, the role of education in uh, creating sustainable, more equitable futures. Um, so it's a really interesting report. Now, uh, you know, it, it, because it's so new, it remains to be seen what the, I suppose, the, the outcome or the, you know, the effectiveness of, yeah. of the, these ideas will be, you know. Um, but having said that, I think it's a really um, important catalyst for, mm kickstarting critical conversations about 
what our vision for education is locally as well as globally. And to mm. me, one of the really interesting things about the report is that it really champions the role of teachers. Um, and it talks about the transformative potential that teachers have, you know, once they're um, supported and in terms of, you know, adequate resources, in terms of, you know, um, effective continuous professional development but its vision for teachers and teaching to me is really interesting it's a really important counter narrative to what is um, frequently thrown at us now you know from other international organizations this kind of view that teachers are you know pretty much kind of technicians and their role is to uh, foster skills and competencies and it's a really problematic way of thinking about teaching mm -hmm. whereas the UNESCO's Futures of Education report something very different it's very much privileging the autonomy of teachers um, you know it champions the intellectual freedom of teachers um, and it really views the teacher as a professional so mm -hmm. to me it's a really interesting um approach and it's one that should be given a lot uh, a lot of time but as I say kind of given the nature of <laughs> the kind of global educational governance um, regime as it were you know there are other competing uh, if you know arguably a lot more dominant voices that are uh, determining you know the shape of futures of teachers work you know yeah yeah and I, I think um we can probably guess what those are but uh, you know in terms of what, what I mean the role of teachers now has uh, certainly in the last uh, decade just was um ha seems to have focused um a lot on on a lot of more I suppose quantitative stuff you know where, where, where it's all about you know I, I don't really understand what neoliberalism is, but I, but I think that's the right word um, for it. Um, and I, I mean, in a way, like we have this really great report coming out, um, but at the same time, I think teachers are quite concerned about the way education is going. I mean, what, what do you see as the most concerning things for, for, for primary school teachers particularly? Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot to be concerned about. Um, and in part, it is linked to the nature of the, the larger global educational governance regime that I've just alluded to. I mean, mm -hmm. if you look at the, um, the way organizations like uh, the OECD and the World Bank, just how powerful they have become. They're, I mean, just major players in the educational space. And that affects us locally because um, OECD. So uh, the OECD is, I mean, it's all in the name. It's essentially an economic think tank. Um, it's sort of colloquially referred to as this kind of, you know, rich club of, of nations. Um, and it's, it's, its agenda is, you know, it's, 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 it's about creating citizens who will work in service of the global economy, you know. Um, but it has become a major player uh, within the educational space, particularly, you know, in an Irish context, I suppose, in the last 10 to 20 years, what we see is that uh, an organization like the OECD is very much a catalyst, acts as a catalyst for educational reform and for curricular reform um, in Ireland as elsewhere. So we have seen that, you know, way, way, way back, we can go back to the 1960s, the investment in education reform and how that, 
you know, instigated quite radical educational reforms in terms of, uh, you know, from a, an, a, an access and education expansion, expansion perspective. Um, but much more recently, I suppose it's, it's, it has had impact in terms of um, on teacher education, you know, in terms of the reforms of, of teacher education linked to um, the numeracy and literacy strategy, which was sort of a, a response to this kind of what, what's often referred to as kind of PISA shock, you know, so this bad news back in 2009 or whenever it was yeah. that, you know, uh, we were underperforming in terms of numeracy and literacy and um, that this be basically became a trigger or a catalyst for mm. quite substantive educational reform. So if you have, you know, sort of a, a, a reform uh, ready uh, minister for education, quite, quite sort of dramatic changes mm. can, can follow. And this was when an, an organization, which is an economic think tank, whose agenda is really about, you know, the pursuit of neoliberalism, the, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it reorients teachers work yeah. uh it reorients the way teachers are are viewed so we this is this is why we have much more of a culture of accountability now within mm -hmm. within um irish education and it also has the potential to dictate you know not just teachers kind of the, the increasing amount of time that's spent reporting in terms of, you know, and, and accounting for oneself professionally, but it also reshapes the curriculum, how we teach the kinds of things we teach and the kinds of things that are being prioritized, you know, so yeah. um, yeah. I know we're going to be talking about well-being, but, you know, one of the things to say, I suppose, just in terms of flagging that is the OECD, it's kind of interesting that, you know, an, an economic, um, a think tank would become so interested and invested in something like emotion and you yeah. know social emotional learning and so I, I've just been completely fascinated by this question for the past number of years and we see now that in addition to PISA you know these kind of more standard mm -hmm. assessments these comparative assessments of cognitive um, you know cognitive skills and the domains of numeracy and literacy um, they're now moving into the domain of the social and emotional. So okay. the OECD now administers this um, international comparative assessment of social and emotional learning. And I've just been really baffled and intrigued by this. So this is kind of has become um, one of the focuses of my research now. Excellent. And, and I mean, you're segueing very nicely into, into the next lesson, but I do, I just wanted to uh, say there, it was really interesting back at, with those PISA results, this knee jerk reaction, uh, almost I felt um, for, uh, at the time the minister uh, brought in the literacy and numeracy strategy and then all of a sudden SSE came in and, and now it's absolutely embedded in the, in the um, primary education system as, as entirely, I would suggest it's entirely useless. Uh, concept um, for 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 uh, primary schools because I have never, I mean, just looking at SSE in itself, there's no school in the country that ever actually fails in any of their targets uh, that they put in. I mean, that they're, mm. they're they're designed to 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 succeed, so it, it doesn't really 
it's there to tick a box rather than actually do anything. And I, I thought, which was kind of funny, uh, I find it funny, but it's not funny at all because shaped education is that after, uh, before the literacy numeracy strategy was put in place, we'd already gone back to where we were and the PISA tables before it had any impact. And we're left with this kind of bizarre um, strategy that actually had no purpose and didn't improve things anyway. But anyway, I, 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 I it, it leads me into, um, the second knee-jerk reaction, in a way, I think, was um, when uh, Janice Sullivan was the uh, Minister for Education. Uh, kind of, for me, out of, the, out of nowhere, um, there was this, all of a sudden, the word well-being came along. And then, all of a sudden, we had this new document, uh, which seemed to be a mishmash of things, the well-being policy statement and framework. It's a catchy name. Um, and I, I just found it, um, I just found it, very, again, just a knee-jerk reaction because it seemed to be something we need to be doing. And um, I don't know, how, how, how did you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it did seem like, <laughs> as you say, it's a knee-jerk reaction. It seemed to kind of come out of nowhere. I think these ideas have been percolating for a very, very long time uh, internationally. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting in the sense that, uh, you know, because historically education has been um, viewed as, as being this kind of very rational enterprise and being concerned with knowledge acquisition, um, the more kind of touchy-feely uh, emotional side of things, I think, was largely neglected. So um, concepts like well-being, which is linked to this broader discourse of social and emotional learning. So people kind of talk about well-being as a proxy concept of social and emotional learning. But um, that's that whole domain, that kind of what, you know, some researchers call this emotional paradigm or this new emotional paradigm within education. It's kind of been building for a while, but it took a very long time for it to be taken seriously by, you know, um, international organizations, those who drive and, and um, determine the shape that educational policy takes locally, um, because it was associated with emotion, which was largely perceived as being irrelevant to education. Um, but you have this kind of vast, kind of complex infrastructure of um, more or less uh, well-being and social emotional learning evangelists, you know, who are incredibly powerful. Um, so it's, it, it's a small number of what I call the kind of the holy of social emotional learning um, so basically it's kind of the the three disciplines that are dominating and advancing this agenda or this movement trying to build this movement within education globally are uh, neuroscientists and neuro, or neuropsychologists positive psychologists and uh, behavioral economists um, so this holy trinity are incredibly influential um, and they're very densely networked. So you have um, a number of kind of um, thought leaders. This is kind of the expression that's used, <laughs> who um, are very effective at securing um, philanthropic interests. So a lot of these kind of collaboratives, these social emotional learning collaboratives, uh, which are kind of US based. Um, work in partnership with uh, university research centers and the academics who head those up. And those 
um, centers and collaboratives tend to receive a lot of funding. So their so-called funding partners mm. are people like, you know, it's the Facebooks, it's the Chan Zuckerberg Foundations, it's the Bezos Foundation, it's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. These are the people who are funding. So it's, you know, funding this enterprise and this, this movement. Um, so there's a very clear kind of um, corporatist kind of commercial dimension to this which doesn't often um isn't often necessarily apparent uh, you know immediately um but that's kind of the and the, it, it it's it's as i say this is it's been in evolution for quite some time so the the kind of gurus as it were the academic gurus who have been promoting this have really been trying since the you know like the, the 90s to get this taken seriously and it has everything to do with the fact that there is this uh, correlation between um particular character skills or personality traits or attributes so uh, things like um, persistence or grit, or growth mindset, uh, resilience, um, you know, teamwork, creativity. It's what I kind of call that, you know, as Greta Thunberg might say, the blah, 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 you know, of, <laughs> um, of education. You name it, you can throw this particular attribute or trait or character skill into a box and it's somehow magically supposed to, um, you know, uh, bring about academic um, success. It's seen as the kind of the, 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 the social emotional is seen as being core to um, ensuring academic success. So, um, and, that, um, and can I can I just ask because yeah. um, you know I, I suppose we would all probably um, be be guilty in primary level of of li listening to a lot of this over the last number of years, the idea of growth mindset mindset, particularly in things like Class Dojo, for example, which is used in I think. Um, of 20, 30% of primary schools. Um, and, and, and a lot of the messaging there is around this idea of growth mindset. We, we hear a lot about, you know, building resilience in children and, and all this sort of stuff. I mean, is, is there merit to this, um, uh, you know, or, or are we just being given the buzzwords and expected just to, you know, do what we, do what we think um, or do what we feel or... or I mean, I suppose I'm a skeptic. I'm not. I mean, it's it's couched, you know, the 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 sort of class dojo, uh, what I call the kind of si Silicon Valleyization of of education. Um, it, it's very closely aligned with uh, Carol Dweck's work in in kind of growth mindset, and you know this this idea that. Uh, you know, um, intelligence is something that can be cultivated, uh, you know, and it's all about you know, just being, being persistent and, um, and overcoming this idea of a sort of a, a fixed mindset. I, I suppose I'm skeptical because it's couched in the language and the logic of neuroscience. Um, and I think there's, <laughs> there's reason to be uh, quite cautious about some of the claims that are being made um you know it's all very attractive and you know it's should view the brain as a muscle you know that can be you know improved and radically enhanced just just as you know as you might you know um build your muscles in the context of physical exercise or something like that to me the message is 
it's it's just a radical oversimplification of how of you know how learning takes place yeah. um and this, this is where of, I, if you can dream it you can be it kind of this style yeah of it's 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 so problematic in in that respect because for me my, my big kind of concern is because the message is so oversimplified, you know, it, 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 the, the idea boils down to, well, people who possess these traits or these character skills or who can acquire them, because the big focus is on their learnability and it's linked to this neuroscientific principle of neuroplasticity and the malleability of the brain, you know, so we can, we can alter these, these mindsets. Uh, so the idea is that, you know, well, educational success can be explained uh, in terms of those who possess these traits or qualities um, are successful and those who don't or those who are who refuse to develop or acquire them, you know, are basically made responsible for their own sort of situation and circumstances. And we've seen this creep into um, things like early childhood policy, um, you know, um, I'm particularly concerned with how it frames and casts parents from um, particular backgrounds, you know, those who are from disadvantaged, socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds, because it's all about equipping them with effective parenting strategies and parenting skills. And the implication really is that they're inadequate parents, they're um, you know, because they're they're not imparting these skills to their children. And, you know, that's kind of why um, we have um, major disparities in educational outcomes when the reality is, you know, it's just a radically, <laughs> infinitely much more complex picture. We need to look at the broader social context within which um, education happens, you know. Mm. So to, to come back to your question around the well-being framework, you know, my concern with, you know, on one level, you look at that document and you say, okay, well, we have reference to the structural dimensions of well-being. And, you know, there's a nod to this idea that there are certain conditions within society that are conducive to well-being and that there are others that are you know, that, that aren't. So, and there's, you know, there's a reference to this kind of the broader social ecology of well-being. So we have this kind of nod of preempting of, of, you know, the structural and um, the broader social context. But when you look at how well-being is being framed in that document, um, this kind of self-managing, self-regulating mm -hmm. citizen, somebody who is self-reliant. It's a very individualistic model and understanding of, of human beings. And mm -hmm. it's all about, well, let's teach people how to make the right choices. You know, it all boils down to more or less, well, well-being is a lifestyle choice. Well, nice. I just think that that is um, patently untrue, but, yeah. you know, it's, and it's all about, you know, constructing this agile, um, atomized individual who makes the right choices uh, so that they can be emotionally resilient in the face of whatever it is, whether it's climate catastrophe, whether it's, you know, um, a global economy where there are, you know, very few good jobs and a load of crappy jobs or no jobs or, you know, a post-employment society. Let's, let's just create this completely agile, 
um, resili uber resilient citizen. And to me, that's just terror. It's a terrifying prospect. That that's how well-being is being defined, you know, and the difficulty is linked to what you were saying about, you know, the school self-evaluations. Well-being is now front and center of that process, mm. you know. It's even becoming a curriculum subject at primary level. Um, and, and to me, um, I mean, I'm, I, I'll get onto that in a second, but it, it sounds like, um, you know, uh, from a primary school teacher's perspective, when we're, we're you know, well-being, I'm not sure we even understand what it is, but yet we're expected to provide well-being to our children without knowing, I mean, for, from talking to you just there, it seems that we're trying to make children be highly resilient people, and that's what well-being boils down to i mean am i am i oversimplifying it again or what are no I, th I think i mean i think that's 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 my reading of it you know and for me my major concern with that is you know um so there's a whole kind of resilience literature now that's informing these frameworks you know mm -hmm. um and my main concern is i suppose you know i, I i'm interested in social transformation and what are the what are the what are the conditions and they're the enablers of that mm. and um i just i just find that the discourse of resilience is about conditioning people to adapt to there is no uh, and you know one of these scenarios like there is no alternative rather mm. than equipping them with you know um the knowledge and the the skills for for want of a better word mm -hmm. to to work towards altering this system which yeah. you know works for many people but certainly doesn't yeah so it's about conditioning us to accept the status quo or the business as usual model of global mm -hmm. capitalism rather than equipping children with tools to really work towards changing society and that's my major difficulty with the whole linking of well-being and emotional resilience wow i mean it, it, that, that that's quite a scary thought because i mean before talking to you i was i didn't i i, I sort of was thinking of well-being in a way of like how to you know keep people feeling happy or contented and you know when when someone's uh, when a child might be you know um experiencing sadness or trauma or whatever it is and um, that the adults around them are there to you know bring up this well-being as if there was a kind of a you know a medicine in a way and there was no way there was no, nothing out there for teachers and um, who also aren't necessarily um you know it's uh, people who have good well-being for want of a better word and thus are expected to be like these one good adults to these, these and so on it's yeah there's this is more about um yeah this is this is deeper than that you know it's it's, it's almost creating a, a society of people who are accepting of yeah. things they shouldn't be accepting yeah yeah and i mean you know the whole the whole idea that we should be happy all the time 
time, I mean, it's, it's, it's also problematic in that, um, you know, it's this kind of duty to be happy that, that the, the, the happiness duty, I mean, that's, that is arguably a very problematic way to be as well, because when you look at how, you know, social change uh, actually takes place, it's often driven and comes from a place of being angry, being unhappy, you know, so I think we need to attend more to negative emotions and the, the power of negative emotions, rather this kind of this injunction to be happy all the time, you know, mm. I mean, having said that, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to minimize, you know, the severity of mental health comple complexities that exist in schools. So uh, I, I do want to be very clear about that, but yeah. I would be very concerned about this notion of the, you know, the one good adult that you've mm. alluded to there in, in that, that, that we see kind of peppered throughout this well-being framework because and, and again I'm always kind of curious as to what are the origins of these concepts where yeah. where in the hell do they come from and it seems to be drawn again from the resilience literature this notion of this um and a charismatic adult figure it seems to be a watered down version of that um mm. but that charismatic adult figure oftentimes seems to be a teacher so in, when you look at the resilience literature this it just so happened to be a teacher you know who yeah. was the yeah you know was this one good adult and, by default a teacher is the one good adult like we're all yeah very, we're very much i mean we might the danger as well i think is that we we the teachers may think we're they're the one good adult for 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 any child and they could be far from a good adult for a particular circumstance and yeah. you know i mean I, I don't know if that's i mean it's probably going a, a bit too deep into it but um that's that's a kind of in a way scares me that if you have a child experiencing something that you know no teacher can really um you know i suppose um i mean we can empathize perhaps but we, we can we, we may not necessarily have the skills um, yeah and, and and yeah i mean the the, the the question really is you know why should a teacher be placed into that position first of all i mean um there isn't really the evidence to suggest that young people particularly young people from kind of marginalized backgrounds or communities feel comfortable discussing deeply personal aspects of their lives with a teacher you know so it, so that's kind of one one side of things you know why is a teacher being put into this kind of situation or into this role um these kinds of decisions often tend to coincide with you know um a reduction in resourcing of you know positions where for, where people are actually like putting actually qualified people in place to mm -hmm. deal with those kinds of complexities you know yeah. Um, yeah. so i'm always very deeply suspicious of of those kind of moves you know and that sort of you know and again it's not to it's not to deny the crucially important role that teachers play and there is like there is research evidence to suggest that teachers can serve as very important cultural guides in, in mm. children and young people's lives but that's usually more linked to you know if if a child encounters a bump in the road academically you know yeah. so I, I'm just very concerned that teachers are being placed in a very unfair position under the guise of this one good adult yeah. you know and because the implication is that if you're if you're not comfortable you're not you're not a good adult you're yeah you're, you know <laughs> yeah. in a way that you're rejecting yeah. um yeah you know, your, your purpose in life
and ergo you're a bad teacher you see all of this really is linked to this wider construction of what constitutes good teaching which is you know being dictated by organizations like the OECD and it's linked to their particular you know um framing of teachers um so yeah I think it it behooves us to be skeptical of these discourses or narratives around the one good teacher exactly so i i assume um for, uh, going back to it I, we touched on there that you're aghast that well-being is now about to be uh, on the new primary cur- curriculum uh aghast yeah i mean <laughs> maybe that's too too strong a word like i i respond to that is that i'm I'm very much in favor of deeper engagement with emotion within education. Um, so for me, one of the questions that I'm really interested in is what, you know, what does it mean or, or you know, what, what happens when emotion is taken seriously as a focus of educational practice and educational research? Um, but as I was saying earlier, if you look at how well-being and social emotional learning more broadly is being framed within the curriculum, it, it, it's kind of terrifying because it's, it's, it's to the extent that it's concerned with emotionality, it's really looking at emotional regulation. You know, uh, it's not really about, well, how do we, um, you know, how do we engage people around like you know, difficult knowledge that is emotionally challenging, whether it's, you know, climate catastrophe or, um, you know, the refugee crisis. Like, I think it's very important that um, teachers are equipped with the tools to have those kinds of complicated conversations with Mm -hmm. even very young children. Mm -hmm. Um, So for me, the focus on well-being to the extent that it's very much about producing this emotionally resilient, self-reliant, you know, um, agile citizen, it it takes away from, you know, the the really meaningful work that can, that needs to take place, you know. Um, I'm struck by, by, um, you're talking about climate catastrophe and all this sort of stuff, stuff. it brings me back to my my own uh, childhood. And I remember I went to um, uh, a Jewish school in Dublin and uh, part of uh, our education was about uh, basically learning about the Holocaust. And um, I remember my mom telling me uh, that I was being taught um, pretty much in, I imagine in, in, I don't remember the details of the lessons. I was only four or five at the time about like, you know, looking at these six candles representing the 6 million Jews that were killed and probably hearing like absolutely stuff that was totally not age appropriate and being really affected by it for, um, for, for quite some time. And in some ways, I mean, that's not the, the teacher's fault at all. Uh, the teacher, uh, teacher not, um, uh, it's a very complicated thing to do. I mean, to, to teach children about traumatic things like, climate catastrophe like the refugee crisis like like all these things because they you know I, I while they might while they may be easy for some children to be able to process there's some children that might be deeply affected by it I, I know I went um you know my, my mom again told me that for about a year every time we passed the graveyard I'd ask did the Nazis do that you know and you know and I, I mean it wasn't I mean I don't think it affected my life particularly but um there are other issues that probably can do that and our, I don't think teachers are equipped or should be equipped uh, or I mean they should be equipped but I mean if they can be equipped to um 
to this and, and uh, like would that be fair or am i you know just using you as my my psychologist here to talk about my own traumatic youth <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no i mean i think that's a really um useful example of you know just the sheer complexity of this kind of work and why you know it's one of the reasons why i'm just so frustrated that uh when emotion is being considered it's 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 this incredibly reductive um instrumentalist version of emotion um and i mean i just think if you look at the you know the issues that children and young people are being forced to grapple with in terms of you know um their futures and their you know their existing lives i mean they're surrounded by the realities of um climate change um and other other traumatic forms of of knowledge or you know um whether it's genocide whether it's the refugee crisis um so and i suppose it it's it's linked to how we think about children so sometimes i think there's this idea that you know well it's it's you know it's it's unthinkable to actually engage you know children with these complicated conversations and it's associated with this view that it's kind of developmentally inappropriate this idea of sort of childhood innocence and i understand this desire and urge to protect very young children in particular from the harsh realities of life but i suppose one of the ways i think about it is that the template is already there if you look at um you know even children's fairy tales you mm -hmm. know th there's these little kind of signals or warnings that yeah. are being given to children so it's this kind of tension between wanting to protect children and paint a particular view of the world and also you know let them know that things aren't always all that glitters is not gold yeah, you know dangerous, so dangerous to me idea. that template is there and young children have the capacity to engage these things if we construct them exclusively as objects of protection well then we're kind of denying them access to uh very important knowledge mm. and understandings and a vocabulary with which to understand and reflect on um you know very challenging issues yeah. so yeah. i think that the the need is there but i i i can also you know sympathize with teachers who are being placed in that position of having to engage these issues really without maybe the toolkit that's that that's mm -hmm. needed and for me this whole focus on well-being and social and emotional learning is it's taking away those spaces so yeah yeah i i think um you know, on the opposite side of well-being, the other buzzword, and I, I don't mean to, uh, you know, minimize the this by, by, by calling it a buzzword, it isn't, um, but it, there seems to be this kind of um, idea that children's mental health can be fixed by, by this well-being, you know, so you've got, there's a child and there's a, an issue with mental health, let's wave a magic wand with well-being and then we'll fix the, the, the child. I, I mean, that's, that's what it seems to, to me to be, um, as, that schools are expected to do rather than, um, you know, the much more complicated and complex as uh, things that the children might need. Am I, am I being unreasonable saying that or? No, I mean, I think, again, if you look at the well-being um, 
framework, you know, one of the things that struck me as very odd about it is there's no reference really of scant sort of recognition of the effect that exams have and, you know, Mm. school-based cultures of competitive individualism you know mm. so it's it's almost like these like the the, the realities the, the things that cause very significant psychological distress for young people are just being abstracted out of the picture you know um and it is this idea that we just you know equip children with certain skills a certain skill set a certain mindset and then nothing else matters Mm -hmm. you know as opposed to well why don't we look at you know what are the conditions what would be the what are the larger enabling (laughs) conditions you know that would that are actually conducive to well-being and what kinds of things do we need to change within our education system that are contributing to um psychological distress and you know uh, but that just seems to be like invisibilized within this framework or within yeah. this narrative. So it's kind of curious, isn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. It just, it just seems to make very little sense to me that we, we've we've really just been given a word, but no. Um, but I think you said a, a toolkit to, you know. Um, but I also think on top of that, but I, I don't think even having a toolkit would be enough. I mean, there's there's so many others. Um, that need to be involved in a, in, a, in a child's life if they are experiencing difficulties, wh- whatever they might be. And I, I, I've noticed a lot of it, you know, as you were saying, has been kind of dumped on, on onto, onto a teacher um, to sort of deal with, you know, whether that's um, anything as small as like poor attendance, for example, uh, uh, you know, that used to be somebody's job to, um, you know, to encourage that. Now the school is asked to put in place something they don't even say what it is to encourage attendance you know and yeah. uh you know and that's a very minor example um you know you it, it's the same in every like you could name a name an issue and it's almost um you know just just here, do something on well-being with your class and that, yeah. that'll that'll do it so i, I kind of I, I suppose um i'm kind of thinking gosh there's there's this huge huge amount to be done and actually the word well-being is is being um what, what uh, is probably a very good word, but it's actually been um, ruined. <laughs> you know, it, it's 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 now being, I suppose, used it completely in the, as a as a I don't know weaponized is too strong a word, but you know if you're not doing well being, even though we're not going to tell you what it is, you know you're not doing your job properly as a teacher. Yeah. I, I, I don't know yeah. if that's fair, but yeah, yeah, and and in part it's linked, I think, to the fact that something like well-being is seen to be amenable to curricular intervention, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, this happens all the time when there's sort of a, 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 a major kind of, you know, crisis or perceived crisis. So in this yeah. case, it's, it's, you know, one of the reasons why well-being has become such a buzzword is because there is this, you know, perceived um, mental health crisis globally amongst young people now i'm not an epidemiologist so i'm not qualified to say if if there is or there isn't but um you can see how well-being uh is very attractive you Mm. know when when those kind of concerns um are in the ether you know and um it's because it's couched in science and these neuroscientific pronouncements. And it's, it's a very hopeful message. The mm. message is that you intervene on your own brain, you know, that our yeah. brains are malleable. And of course it's all about brains. It's not about minds or it's not about yeah. human beings. It's yeah. about brains. Right. Mm. So, so they're, um, 
you intervene on your own brain and hey presto you know <laughs> you're saw you're fixed yeah and yeah. it and it's what's interesting to me is that this this whole movement has now been latched onto you know the the sustainable development goals you know it's and it's being mm. viewed as the, the the thing that's going to fix like you know like radical extremism and you mm. know violence so it's everything from you know obesity to um bullying to like it's it's just it's so fantastical you know mm. um but uh yeah so it's seen as being amenable to curricular intervention and this happens all the time when when these these crises or perceived crises um mm exists because education gets viewed as this kind of panacea you know mm. um and let, let let's look at education as the means of so solving this this enormous problem or crisis sort of irrespective of what it is you yes, know? Yes, yeah. um which is just such a tall order you know so uh it's this idea that education can compensate for society when in fact you know as basil burnt to to quote basil bernstein education cannot compensate for society you know so i think this is where we as educators need to really find our voice and kind of go no hang on a minute here you know mm. um it's not to say that education doesn't have a resolving these crises these crises um yeah. you know um it absolutely does but we need to take a much uh like a you know like a, a wide angle view of of what's going on here you know yeah, and what the what the underlying root causes of these these challenges and crises actually are yeah yeah and yeah. and also to look more critically at the system itself you know as i was yeah. saying i just find it baffling that there's no engagement with you know what's actually wrong with our with our educational mm -hmm. system that's that may be causing psychological distress in the first place you know absolutely no you're you're, you're absolutely right um unfortunately we've kind of come uh, to the to the end of, of our discussion i could talk to you i really could talk to you for, for another hour about this because I've, I've loads more questions but i i i kind of feel we're, we're, we've talked for about 45 minutes and uh i think we've got a good grounding i i always ask um my uh, I'm going to, and my guests, uh, what, uh, because I, in my regular podcast, I say what I would do if I was the Minister for Education. So I always uh, give you the, uh, you know, you get the benign dictatorship um, <laughs> as the Minister for Education. You can do one thing. Um, so if you were the Minister for Education, what is the one thing you would do mm. first? <laughs> okay. Um, well, I know this is very politically controversial. Um, but if I were Minister for Education, I think one of the first things that I would do is actually eliminate private schooling or at least um, the state subsidization of private schooling in this country in terms of, you know, teacher salaries and capitation grants, because mm -hmm. I think it, you know, it really just, I suppose it reflects, you know, how stratified our society is and it really endorses and entrenches elitism within the mm -hmm. system you know um and it basically means in practice that people who cannot afford to attend private schools um are subsidizing those who are you know already highly privileged within society you know mm -hmm. um so that's kind of one of the first moves that that i would make you know in terms of creating a a system that is 
more equitable, more inclusive, and that doesn't discriminate along, you know, social class lines, that doesn't discriminate, uh, you know, along religious lines, along gender lines. We have a highly stratified educational system. Mm. Um, and then linked to that, I would... I would eliminate things like league tables and uh, you know <laughs> those kinds of things. So yeah, I know it's I know it's a controversial idea, but it's becoming less controversial though. To be fair, I mean I I mean I I, I completely agree with you. I mean I, I actually think the going squaring back to what we were talking about at the very start about the um, literacy and numeracy um, uh, strategy, one of the points in that was that there was a line deliberately saying that they would that the results that we have to send to the Department of Education. Um, would not necessarily be um, used to construct um, or wouldn't be encouraged, let's say, to be to, to, to create league tables, which doesn't exactly say they wouldn't be in the future. I mean, and I always say we're just one freedom of information request away from league tables at primary school um, because we, we all send our um, literacy and numeracy scores to the Department of Education every year. So I, I don't think it's an, an absolutely irrational uh, fear in any way that that's the case. And then the idea of like every primary school is a private fiefdom in a way uh, whether um whether people people don't pay fees necessarily to go to primary schools in, in, in i mean in the vast majority of cases but they are still private entities um, and the funding can sometimes reflect that even the um i suppose not the overt funding that you know if if you've got certain um classes of parents who are able to you know pay for things like um, something as simple as like a, a, a I don't know a football pitch um, um, and then the school up the road which may not have the, you know parents who can finance that don't and all of a sudden there's a shift and there's competitive nature between schools as well so I, 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 th- I think sorry I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to full-on lecture mode here <laughs> um, but you know I, I think it's it's you know to be honest that's my the first thing I would change to um, mm. because you know, we we have a very fractured education system as a result. Um, so, yeah, no, I know I'm with you on that one. It's such a pleasure to to talk with a, a like minded, <laughs> like minded individual. Oh, and you too, Audrey. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you uh, on, and thank you for agreeing to do this. Um, I'm, so I'm very welcome. bad at asking people to do things, so I was delighted when I got when when uh, a mutual acquaintance. Who, who neither of us know to be honest with you uh they're <laughs> yeah it's, they're, it's a great mystery I'm, I'm i'm hoping all will be revealed at some point <laughs> yes yeah just for those who, who who are wondering who that is there's a fantastic twitter account called the mole of molesworth street it's a parody account from the department of education and um when 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 they're not parodying um they have actually really good thoughts on education which they uh, sometimes share and uh uh, he or she is a big fan uh, of you, Audrey, and uh, and and put uh, put you my in my direction. So I was delighted when you're happy to talk to me. So listen, I will leave it there. And thank you so much again, Audrey Brian. If anyone needs to find out more about you, where can they find you? Um, yeah, well, I guess the simplest thing to do is to Google my my DCU research profile because most of my publications will come up there, or else uh, on Google Scholar. Um, most of my publications are, are listed. Um, yeah, I am, I'm kind of, I have great plans to start writing blog posts and stuff like that. Um, but uh, that's still very much a work in progress, but I'm hoping to get there sooner rather than later. Uh, but it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed our, our dialogue. 
Uh, likewise, uh, so that, that was Audrey Bryan from the DCU Institute of Education, formerly known as St. Pat's, uh, as I said, and uh, thanks once again. And now I'm going to hit the stop recording <laughs> thing here. There we go. So there we are. Uh, I'd like to thank Audrey for giving her, us her time. And uh, it was a really interesting chat, in my opinion. I, I, I have to say, you know, I came in I, I thinking that I was, you know, a little bit um, confident about my knowledge of well-being and the scepticism I have and the cynicism I have around well-being. But I must say, um, I didn't realise um, how much uh, depth there is in the well-being area, uh, where it's coming from. I was particularly interested in, in some of the facts that, you know, a lot of this money coming into well-being is probably coming from um, ventures that might not necessarily be looking at people's well-being, but perhaps looking at the whole idea of, you know, this capitalist regime, if we can call it that. Uh, I'm not coming across as some raving, you know, maybe communist or socialist or anything like that, but I, you know, it's kind of interesting that the intention of this well-being are really to make people resilient to anything that happens to them, instead of being angry and trying to get change, trying to make people happy with their lot, trying to make them resilient against things that are not good and actually in reality when awful things are happening it's okay to be angry and to try and make change and I kind of believe in a way um you know in a way and maybe you see this comes down to my own selfishness and thinking about myself in a way it I, I feel affirmed uh, a lot by some of the things that I do a lot of people tell me you know stop being so negative could you not like and would you not join up with the various partners as they're called you know to make change from within you know and all this kind of stuff and actually no I think I feel very affirmed that I that I am angry about things in education I am angry and I want things to change and I'm not going to go into these silly political groups that seem to be in the public face saying nothing about anything uh, for fear of offending. Um, I'm, 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 I'm really kind of, I feel a bit more justified in that fact and, and, and I suppose I feel angrier at the agencies like the IPP and the INTO and the rest of them that aren't speaking out and aren't being more angry and maybe being more a little bit inappropriate and maybe more disruptive. Um, so I, I, maybe maybe that's just me coming out of that uh, out of that interview feeling that way. Um, but the more I think about it, you know, I, I feel justified, uh, and I feel we should all be a little bit more angry and upset with the regimes that are out there. Um, and you know, when people throw us, when these groups throw us out well-being things, no, we should shout back, no, just give us the change. Anyway, I, I don't have any much more to say about this. I hope you enjoyed this interview um, with Audrey. I certainly did. Really interesting, really, really thought-provoking, to be honest with you. And um, thank you for listening to it. If you have enjoyed this podcast, do please consider subscribing to it because you will get the episodes straight to your inbox before anybody else gets them. And I'd really appreciate any reviews you have. Um, really, really pleased, as I said, to talk to Audrey for a length of time. At the end, uh, we were chatting and she said, you know, it's kind of nice to be able to draw things out because when you're being interviewed by the radio or the television, you're only given a few seconds to get your point across. And when situations like this are, are much more complicated and much more complex, sometimes you need to talk for a while about these things um, to get your point across. And I think that's something I, I suppose, in, you know, that I'm, I'm learning as I go along, that podcasts do give you that extra time to really flesh out these issues without the, um, I suppose, 
the, the, the high pace rate that you might need in, let's say, in, in normal mainstream media. Um, you know, for in a radio show, you're getting five minutes to talk about something when it might need a lot more time. Uh, look, that's all we have to say on this. So I hope you do keep well um, uh, over the next while, whatever wh- whatever way you can do that. Um, I don't think a well-being seminar is something you'll be doing over the holidays. Uh, but thanks for listening and uh, we'll catch you in the new year. All the very best. Bye bye. <laughs>